may be seated. Now for the main message, we'll have Pastor Adrian Davis, entitled Weapons of Mass Instruction. Weapons of Mass Instruction. Thank you, Brother Landon. Good afternoon, brethren. The Western nations are facing a rising danger from terrorists and rogue states seeking to use weapons of mass destruction. A weapon of mass destruction is a nuclear, radiological, chemical, biological, or other device that is intended to harm a large number of people. Weapons of mass deception enable weapons of mass destruction. That if populations of citizens understood the threats and dangers they were facing, they would demand of their governments to protect them. But through weapons of mass deception, citizens are sitting ducks. And they're, they're allowing themselves to be vulnerable, wittingly or unwittingly. This week I was in Paris, and a business partner, familiar with Paris, he's American, but he thought he would show me around. And that was very kind of him. And he just showed me some of the history of Paris. It was quite fascinating. Beautiful city, lots of history there. Changing. And as he was showing me around, I was very aware of the tension in the air. Everywhere I looked, I would see armed guards, military with submachine guns. And I see them, they're, they're tense, they're monitoring. And I noticed my colleague was completely oblivious. He's just showing me the historical sites. He, he doesn't see what I see. And the reason two people can look at something and see to two totally different things is this. We do not see with our eyes. We do not see with our eyes. We see with our stories. Whatever the stimuli is that's coming into these sockets, the brain has to interpret what it sees. The brain has to be this highly efficient instrument that uses as little energy as possible to do as much as possible. And so much of the brain's job is to ignore, to filter out. And that's why we have to rely on our narratives, our stories. Our stories tell us whether something that's in front of us is important. At one point, we were walking past, a, it was an armored truck. And I looked inside, and I saw five or six military in there, and one outside with his submachine gun. And I finally said to my colleague, you can feel the tension in the air. And he was like, what? what, what and I pointed. And then we walked on, and not five minutes later, a police car drove up very suddenly, stopped suddenly, four policemen ran out and ran down into the underground. And, and I just, there's just this sense like at any moment, anything can happen. And yet my colleague was oblivious. Because I have a different story. We have a different story. We have a narrative that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. 
And that narrative, past, present, future, enables us to see things in the present very differently than those around us. While I was in Paris, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, was also there. No, we didn't meet. He was there meeting with the New Zealand Prime Minister and several other leaders in the Western world, dealing with the fallout from the Christchurch massacre. And here he says, uh, this is from the Star, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says, social media platforms and tech giants have failed Canadian users, and it's time the government stepped in. According to prepared remarks obtained by the Star, the Liberal government is set to unveil a framework for reining in tech giants like Facebook, Google, and Amazon. The so-called Digital Charge Charter will outline the government's expectations on issues such as data ownership, privacy protections, and the online dissemination of hate. And Trudeau said the government is considering meaningful financial penalties for companies that break the rules. In other words, our government is now colluding with technology giants to ensure that no speech that they interpret as hate speech can go online. And I think we can see where this is going, where the Bible is going to be considered homophobic, Islamophobic, et cetera-phobic, it's going to be considered hate speech. And therefore, any preaching from the Bible will be taken offline. Also very convenient that at the same time he's threatening with significant financial penalties to social media companies that don't comply, he's also giving meaningful financial incentives to media companies that do comply. Is this Canada? Is this the modern world? Or are we in Soviet Union? Soviet Russia, pre-World War I, World War II, what's going on here? And it's interesting that this uh, intense response is after the mosque shooting in Christ Church where 50 were killed, horrible, tragic, things like this should never happen, and yes, something should be done. But after Christ Church, we had Sri Lanka where 321 Easter worshippers were killed. We can't say Christian. We don't want anybody feeling sympathetic for Christian. And yet Christians are being slaughtered 100,000 a year. Silence. This should not be in the media. But if Muslims are touched or harmed or insulted or offended in any way, this has to be headline news. Behind all of this, as I say, we see with our stories, not with our eyes. Behind all of this is the power of philosophy. This is why we need to understand philosophy. And we've spoken here about postmodernism, about the influence of Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. And, and Jacques Derrida, with his deconstruction, made it clear that the Western societies are logocentric, logocentric and that he has to deconstruct logocentrism. In other words, they're against the logos. They're against logic. And that's why we see our societies, Western societies now, devolving 
into hysteria and emotionalism. And there's no logic. You can't, you can't sit and have a, a, an intelligent discussion. The adults have left, and it's all emotional, hysterical children left. And you say anything, oh, that's triggering. You're triggering. And so we, we can't reason, we can't talk. And all of the media is, has adopted this postmodern philosophy, this postmodern narrative. All of the entertainment, and I'm so sorry for young people who are feeding on this world's entertainment. It is highly destructive. It is, there are some very intellectual, philosophical people are behind this programming, and it's designed to destroy humanity and shift how we perceive. They're anti-logic, which is another way of saying they're anti-Christ. They're against the Logos. What I want to do in the sermon today, brethren, is encourage all of us to embrace our purpose and our role as teachers. This world that is subject to deception, that the whole world is being deceived, the whole world is going headlong into disaster, it's going to go from a world of deception to a world of truth. And Christ is not going to do this by himself. He's recruiting an army to help him in bringing the world from deception to truth. We will be that army of teachers. Turn with me as we begin to Isaiah 11. As we consider this task we have of re-educating the entire planet. In Isaiah 11, the prophet writes, beginning in verse 4, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine that? Just think of, think of a body of water. Think of a sea, an ocean, and think of how thoroughly the water covers the earth for that body of, of, uh, of water, that sea or that ocean or lake. And this is how the earth will be. The earth will be full of the knowledge. Of, just try to imagine. It's hard to imagine. That you think of the world today and how deceived and violent and immoral it is. And yet the prophet tells us that a world is coming where the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. How is that going to happen? We know that when the Lord returns, he's returning with ten thousands of his saints. So we are recruited now into this army of teachers that not only are we going to put down the violence, we are also going to be involved in this mass re-education. Let's go to the text that was read today by Brother Ray in Ephesians 6. And we'll take this as our main text today. There is so much here, and I, I can't go through all of it, 
what I do want to do is highlight, it's a defensive posture here. We have to stand against the wiles of the devil. We have to defend ourselves. But there's a proactive part of our warfare, our weaponry as well. We need to go out proactively and go on the offense in terms of education. And that's where I want to focus. But let's read the passage. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we certainly can see as the world is unraveling around us, we need this strength. We need to be pillars. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth, my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel." So this will be our main text, but I do just want to focus on three aspects of it that enable us to go on the offense, not just to be on the defense. And in verse 14, we see here the first one. He says, stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having the breastplate and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And Pastor Murray gave a sermon a couple of years ago, hopefully everybody remembers, where he explained the... the um, tunics that brethren used to wear, and when it was time for battle, how, how they could just girt up their loins and tie it so that it became shorts instead of a, a long robe. So this is the notion here that we have to girt up our loins, but with truth. And what is truth? I think we know that truth is the word of God. But in the context of this passage, he, the, the, the apostle does not only mean doctrinal truth. He also means behavioral truth, that our, our behavior must be true. And so we must gird up our loins with true behavior, not just true doctrine. As we've said many times, good doctrine leads to good behavior. Our, our behavior is governed by our doctrine. So this is the importance of teaching, the importance of doctrine, the importance of having good teachers, because poor doctrine leads to poor behavior. So what we're seeing here in Ephesians 6 is the conclusion of the letter to the Ephesians. So we should never just take this passage and run with it as if it's a, a standalone unit. It's not. It's a conclusion to a letter. So the context for Ephesians 6, verse 14, where he's saying, having your loins girt about with truth, let's go back to Ephesians 1 to find the truth. 
And we're going to see both doctrinal truth as well as behavioral truth. Here in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, the apostle writes, and you know, this word finally, where he says, finally, brethren, it's a good word, but maybe it's not the best. Because I might be, my my wife might be talking to me, and we're talking about a number of things, and she might say, finally, don't forget to pick up uh, some milk. Or finally, don't forget to get a bottle of wine. Which has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. It's just like, oh, by the way, here's something else. That's not what he means by finally. It would be better to translate it, therefore. So because of everything I've covered in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and the first part of 6, because of all of this, put on the whole armor of God. So it's, it's not a new subject. It's reinforcing everything that he's covered. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And I want to make it clear here, us, in the context of the sermon that Deacon Jan gave last week, us is Israel. It's Israel. The Bible's not telling two different stories. There's an Old Testament story and a New Testament story. There's one story. And this, the, the passage here, he, this is, he's speaking to Gentile Christians, but these Gentiles have been grafted into Israel. And the story is about Israel. According as he has chosen Israel in him before the foundation of the world, and it's before the foundation of the world, because we knew when he created man that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. And the moment our forefather fell, God said, I'm putting in place a plan of redemption. And out of Eve's seed will come a redeemer. Therefore, Israel, it was known that there would be an Israel for God from the moment of the fall. And so he says here, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having, predestined, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So the church fathers get all confused and mystic because they've rejected Israel. They hate Israel. They hate anything Hebraic. And they want to create a, a Greco-Roman Christianity. And so now with this Greco-Roman, where we kick Israel to the curb, and now I'm some kind of special being that has been predestined to adoption. And nothing wrong can happen to me because I'm so special and predestinated. And he's not saying that. He's saying that Israel, there's an Israel that is predestinated. This is God's will to be glorified in Israel. And he will pull this off. Israel is predestinated to be the, the vehicle of God's glory eternally. And you only just hold your place in one and look at Ephesians 2 and verse 11, where he says, Therefore remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, so he's he's the apostle to the Gentiles, he's talking to these folks who are Gentiles, so remember you were, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, 
that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The Bible tells one story. The Bible is not schizophrenic. It's one story. And God will be glorified in Israel. And these Gentiles were at one time aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. So now the Gentiles can be part of this predestination in Israel. So now Gentiles are included in the predestination or the plan of predestination. Back in Ephesians 1, continuing in verse 6, this is the truth. We, our loins need to be girt up with this truth. It's part doctrinal and part behavioral. This is the doctrinal part. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us, that is Israel, accepted in the beloved, in whom we, that is Israel, have redemption through his blood. So, so Christ came to redeem Israel. He didn't come to say, oh, now all mankind. No such thing in the Bible. The relationship is with Israel. The covenant was with with Israel. The promises are to Israel. Israel fell out of favor with God. And God is now gathering Israel back, beginning with Judah, but ultimately all Israel. He says here, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. So we were rejected, but now we've been accepted in the beloved, in whom we, that is Israel, and the Gentiles grafted in, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And if we were included, if you were following us in the study of Isaiah, it's very clear. By the time we get to Isaiah 53, there's no other way to interpret the scripture than that Christ came to shed his blood to redeem Israel. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the Forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So these brethren were very familiar with the prophet Isaiah. And so in in one line, they summarized all of second Isaiah. Wherein he has abounded toward us, that is Israel, in all wisdom and prudence, having made unto us, that is Israel, the mystery of his will. It's a mystery. It's not simple. It's not something that everybody knows. It's to you it's been given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it's not given. And, and Israel is a significant mystery, again, going back to the sermon last week, which, which Deacon Jan helped us unpack. We have to understand this. It's not obvious. It's hidden. But it's truth. And our loins need to be girt about with this truth. Having made known unto us the mystery and the truth of his will, according to his good pleasure, wherein he has purposed in himself. So there's something that's very pleasing to God that he has purposed in himself, that no one else could do this. God said, I will do it. I will leave heaven, and I will accomplish this purpose in myself. So hold your place here, and let's just see this uh, a glimpse of this purpose in Isaiah 44. In 
Isaiah 44 and verse 23, the prophet writes, Sing. This, this is a time of great rejoicing. God has accomplished his purpose. Sing. Who? O you heavens. The, the, the whole universe can now rejoice that God has accomplished his purpose. Sing, O you heavens, for the Lord has done it. He's done it. His purpose has been accomplished. You lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing. You mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. What's the purpose that he had to accomplish in himself? For the Lord has redeemed the whole world, couldn't care less about Israel. Now it's all about all mankind. He left the heavens with a singular purpose that no one else could pull off. Only he could pull it off. And it was to redeem Israel. Because all of mankind will be saved in Israel and God will be glorified in Israel. So heavens, earth, mountains, forests, trees, everybody, let's rejoice. God has done it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and what? Glorified himself in Israel. He will be glorified in Israel forever. This is his purpose. And verse chapter 49 and verse 3, he says, And said unto me, You, no one else, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The, the, the apostles were intimately familiar with these scriptures. There was no New Testament when the apostles were teaching. And Isaiah was a big scroll. They were familiar with Isaiah backwards and forwards. And so when we're reading here back to Ephesians, when we're reading here in Ephesians 1 and verse 9, that he's made known unto us the mystery of his will. Even the Jews that had memorized the whole text, they didn't understand. To you it's been given, to them it hasn't been given. Their, their eyes, they, they don't have the narrative to interpret what's going on. The Messiah is right in front of them, and they cannot see him because of the false stories in their heads. But to you it's been given. Having made known unto us, he gave us the narrative so that we can see with, our, with the right story. Having made known unto us, verse 9, Ephesians 1, the mystery of his will. It's, it's a mystery, what he's going to pull off. According to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, and that is to redeem Jacob. Just hold your place in Ephesians 1. Jump with me to Ephesians 3. <clears throat> Ephesians 3. And verse 6, understanding this mystery of Israel. And in verse 6 he says, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. This is bizarre to an Israelite mind. That Israel and the Gentiles have nothing to do with one another. In fact, the Jews thought they were superior to Gentiles, that Gentiles are dogs, that the only purpose for Gentiles is to serve us. And now this mystery is being made known to these believing Jews that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This is truth. That everything belongs to Israel. 
And yet, God has allowed the Gentiles to be part of the fellowship, the same body. It's not a separate body, the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So this mystery of, the Israel, of Israel, it's something that God set from the foundation of the world. And he's carrying it out through Abraham. And he's, bringing, he's including Gentiles in Abraham's seed. This is a, a great mystery. But there's no relationship between Gentiles and God. No such thing. This is fantasy. God only has a relationship with Israel. And Gentiles have to be grafted into Israel. And Israel needs to facilitate the relationship that Gentiles will have with God. Because God says, I will be glorified in Israel. And if we deny that, then we are trying to steal God's glory. God is, God is the only being, there's no other being, that can speak in advance and make it so. This, this is how God defines himself. This is, this is the challenge of God. To all the false gods. Show us what you've got. Because I've declared all of this from the beginning. I'm the beginning and the ending. I'm the alpha and the omega. I declare from ancient times that which is not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. And if we deny the central role of Israel in God's glory. We are striking at the root of, of God's argument. That he is God. Back to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So, I love King James poetry. I'm sorry. I just, I really like it. It's, uh, this is beautiful poetry. But when I read it, I have no idea what it's saying. It just sounds nice. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. If I look at the Greek, how I would translate this is, in the fullness of this seasonal plan, he is to gather together all in Christ. Not as poetic, but this makes sense to me. That there is a plan for this season between Pentecost and trumpets. And in this first fruits season, when this plan comes to its fullness and all the Gentiles are grafted in, he is going to gather all, both Jew and Gentile, and Gentiles from all nations into one body in Christ. But that's happening in this dispensation, in this part of the plan. The, the verb, and it's a difficult verb to pronounce, it's the hardest 
word to pronounce in the in the Greek, anakephela o sestai, and it means to gather in. It's in the aorist infinitive tense, which means it describes a situation as a complete event without commenting on whether or not it was a process. But we know it's a process, that there's, there's a process of gathering in the fullness of the Gentiles into Israel in this season. And when, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, then this dispensation is over. And every, both Jew and Gentile, and Gentiles from all nations, will be one in Christ. And we know uh, when we read Revelation 7, which we've studied before, that he says, all nations and kindreds and people and tongues repent before Christ returns. And so they're all gathered in one in Christ. Verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, that is in Christ, being predestinated, again this is Israel, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. So God is just working out his plan, which nobody can stop. Nobody can prevent God pulling off this plan. Even though the heathen rage, God is doing what he's doing, and he laughs at them. They cannot stop this. That we should be the prey to the praise of his glory. God will be glorified in Israel. So this predestinated plan that he has, that he will be glorified in Israel, this is what's happening, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. So we, we were the first ones, Jews. He came to Jews, and they first trusted in him. In whom you Gentiles also trusted. After that you heard the word of truth. So this is the truth. This is the doctrinal truth. And, we, and he's going to shift into behavioral truth. But this is the truth that we have to gird up our loins with. This is what's going to make us strong in the Lord. Because his counsel cannot be denied. He laughs at the heathen. The heathen rage and God laughs because he says, my counsel shall stand. So if we understand the counsel properly, we can have complete confidence. Do what you will. God's counsel will stand. And we're we're like rock solid. We're pillars. Pillars. We can't be moved because our understanding of truth. in whom you also trusted, you Gentiles, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation being grafted in, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is a mystery that the Gentiles should receive the Holy Spirit as well as Israel, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So the purchased possession is Israel, and the praise of his glory is Israel. So it's a result of this mercy that God has granted to Israel that we come to Ephesians 2, and verse 2, where he says, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So this is why he says there's truth, and there's deception. And when we come to Ephesians 6 now, he says, Therefore, be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God because there's truth and now there's deception. According to the prince of the power. So this prince has power 
of the air. And so, you know, we're familiar with um, television broadcasting, radio broadcasting. Now we have the Internet, but it's all the same thing. It's about broadcasting a narrative that blinds people. That when they swallow the narrative, they can't see anymore. This is the power of the devil. The, the, the devil doesn't come and physically accost you and throw you down to the ground. He does this mentally. He makes his entertainment more and more fascinating, greater graphics, and more and more deceptive storylines. I just heard uh, Game of Thrones had 18 or 19 million viewers, and they're just thrilled. I, I don't know if any of us are watching this, but I just saw a trailer of it. looks absolutely demonic. Absolutely demonic. And everybody's just swallowing this hook, line, and sinker. And when they get you with the storyline, now they can fill you with filthy sex and all kinds of violence. And what's happening to human beings is we are all traumatized if we are watching this entertainment. We're constantly seeing blood and gore and the human frame being desecrated. And we can't help but be traumatized. This is like post-traumatic stress disorder from the entertainment industry combined with debauchery. So everybody's sexual standards are dropping and their courage is disappearing just through entertainment. And this is this prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So it's a spirit that's working inside them. And, and it's a narrative that enables them to say, yeah, it's fine, a baby can be born and we can slaughter it. Let's cheer. This, this is twisting up the human mind. Among whom also we all had our conduct in times past. We were all like this. We can't look at them and say we are superior. No, we've been rescued. Among whom also we all had our conduct in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And that's how Satan works, to get us to pursue lust and our desires. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as others. And so we go through Ephesians 1, 2, 3, where he lays out this truth. From there he pivots. And in Ephesians 4, 5, and the first part of 6, he moves from doctrinal truth to behavioral truth, how we should behave. He says here in Ephesians 4 and verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, so he's in prison because of the work of the Lord, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm begging you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So it's not enough to know doctrinal truth. We have to behave in truth. Our, our conduct must reflect the truth, not like those captured by the devil, who, whose conduct makes them children of wrath. We're not like this. We've escaped this, the prince of the power of the air, and therefore we have to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Dropping down to verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So, so it's, there's the prince of the power of the air with every wind of doctrine being promoted. We can't be carried away with this by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to do what? To deceive. This is the power of the devil. Deception. We have to be constantly fighting against deception. The, the, re, the remote control 
that the devil has over human beings is deception. So, so what is the narrative that we we're being fed? Because we don't see with our eyes. We see with our stories. And so what the devil is doing is promoting stories. That if we buy these stories, we fall under his control. They lie in wait to deceive. But us, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. So he is ascended into heaven, and he's given us gifts. And one of these gifts are teachers, to give us the right narrative, so that we can see clearly. And so we're growing up into Christ, and we have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And then when we have this truth, what is the truth? That you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So if we say we have the truth, but our behavior isn't changing, we are useless to God. The whole point of having the truth is to have true behavior so that we can be a holy people to God. But the lusts are deceitful. When we want what we want, we find ways to justify it, and we find stories that justify it. And we believe these stories so that we can have our lusts. But the truth is in Jesus. And we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and that we put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So truth is not just doctrinal. It's behavioral. This is the true holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be you angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. It's a battle. It's a battle that we're in. Let me pause here to say this is the first weapon of mass instruction that we have to have truth. We have to have the right narrative in our heads so that we can see with these stories, see clearly. And if we see clearly, we have to be behave truthfully. Just take a moment in, with your neighbor. What did you hear? What was the most important thing that you heard in this first section? And then we'll go on to the second section. So just take a moment and discuss that. <clears throat> And in fact, let the, let the older person in the pair, or th two or three, the older person tell the younger what they heard. And if the younger has questions or thoughts, you can share that.
Okay, so brethren, let me continue. So hold those thoughts, and we can certainly discuss further in the after-sermon discussion. But again, in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Because of everything that he's covered in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, in the first part of 6, therefore, be strong in the Lord. So he's given us the guidance as to how to do this. Have the truth, the right doctrine, and the right behavior. This is how we withstand the devil. So be strong in the Lord, and not just in the Lord, but it says, and in the power of his might. We need to be strong in the power of his might. What is that? How how do we do this? He goes on in verse 11 to say, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The way this is written, it sounds like a lot of saints are going to collapse. It sounds like the, the, the odds are stacked against us. And so he's urging us to say, be sure you put on, the, don't, don't miss anything. Because the devil is powerful and he's, he's determined. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So this is very clear. The situation is urgent. The apostle is pleading with us not to be sloppy. Put on the whole armor. And the reason is the devil has wiles. He's tricky. The, the, the word is uh, methodia. He has methods. He's determined and he's got techniques. So put on the whole armor. Why? Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This is, we're up against something beyond flesh and blood. We're rather, we're, we're up against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Brethren, this is what we're up against. We can't see this, but this is what we're up against. This is what's going on around us. And the only way we can succeed, he says, is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why does that, like, how does this make sense to us? Again, finally doesn't mean I'm changing the subject. Finally means, therefore, I'm reinforcing what I said earlier. So let's go to what he said earlier in chapter 1. Where he says, in verse 17, that the God of our Lord... Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. We don't see with our eyes, we see with our narrative. So there needs to be enlightenment. We need, we need the right story from the scriptures in order to see clearly. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. It's not obvious. It's a mystery. The the apostle wants us to know what this hope is and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So Isaiah helped us to understand this richness of his glory, that Israel, physical Israel, is going to be blessed beyond measure. 
all the wealth of the Gentiles are going to flow to Israel. And that's peanuts compared to the first fruits. We will be in God overseeing all of this. And he's saying, you've got to understand, the, you know, eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? This is, he says, listen, you don't know what you're up against. You do not know what you're up against. Therefore, be strong in the power of the Lord. Because you don't have the power to with if you won't, If we only knew what we were up against, maybe we wouldn't even get out of bed. But not only can we get out of bed, we can thrive. We can, we can absolutely succeed, guaranteed. Why? Because of this. Be strong in the power of the Lord, he says. And what we need to know, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power. This is mighty power. Yes, I know we're up against spiritual wickedness. Yes, I know we're up against principalities and, and the demonic realm. I know. But we can be strong in the power of his might. He says, you need to know this. this, this, this the, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities. So yes, I know, we're against, the, the principalities are against us. But he raised Christ, placed him on the throne, on his right hand, in the heavenly places, above all the principalities. This is how we succeed. Far above, not just above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. This is why we can be strong. This is how we can be successful. Christ was raised from the dead and put in such a high position of authority that everything else is under him. So we don't have to worry about principalities and powers. Because the, the, the apostle is telling us Christ is above the principalities and all, all powers and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Beautiful. Be strong in the Lord. Not, not by our might, not by our strength. We, we just have to rest in Christ. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to see the hope that we're being called to and understand the glory of his counsel that nobody can withstand. And this is where, this, this is how we overcome. It's Christ. And we're just in Christ. And we trust him. Whatever happens, happens. We trust him. Because nobody's above him. And he's for us. He says, what it says here in verse 19, the, we need to understand the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. This power is toward us. In the news this week in the UK, in, in Manchester, where I was born, 
diners were given a 4,500 pounds, that's around $7,500, bottle of wine by mistake. A bottle of wine for $7,700. Lucky diners were accidentally served a $7,700 bottle of red wine at a restaurant. The, the restaurant said it hoped the customers had enjoyed their evening after being given the pricey 2001 bottle of Chateau Le Pin Pomeroy, Pomeroy that evening. They had ordered a $500 bottle of wine, but instead received the $7,700 bottle. And it, was, uh, it says a mortified staff member who made the error has been urged to keep their chin up as one-off mistakes happen. But it was funny because uh, in, the in the comments, somebody said, um, yes, I enjoyed the wine. Uh, it tasted much better after I mixed in lemonade and some ice. <laughs> but these folks drank it and left. And it wasn't until the waiters were cleaning up that they recognized the mistake. And so they had no idea what they were drinking. And we need to ask ourselves, do we recognize what we are drinking, what we have the opportunity to be a part of? Or are we just drinking it in, walking away, and have no idea what we just consumed? We need to understand the mighty power of him toward us. He says here in verse 15, Ephesians 6, let's look at the second weapon of mass instruction. So first, we need the truth. We need to understand the plan of God, the mystery of Israel, and we need to understand how we, how we must behave as a holy people. That's one. Number two, he says here in verse 15, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So it's interesting that he doesn't say your feet shod with the gospel. He says with the preparation of the gospel. So there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a preparation of the gospel of peace. We know in, in 2 Timothy 2.15, we're to show, we're to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So part of this preparation is studying the scriptures, being a workman with the scriptures, not being lazy, digging in, rightly dividing the scriptures, understanding what the will of the Lord is. That's a part of this preparation. What is this gospel of peace? So we have to prepare for the gospel of peace. So our feet, we should have the shoes should be the right kind of shoes. They're the preparation of the gospel of peace. What is this peace? Again, this is a conclusion to earlier statements. So let's look at the earlier statements that he will define for himself what he means by peace, Ephesians 2. Verse 11, Therefore remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, at that time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. 
for he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So the Gentiles have been used over and over to destroy Israel. The Gentiles have been enemies of Israel. And now there is peace between Israel and the Gentiles, for he is our peace. Having abolished in the flesh the hostility, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. So there's this initial peace here that he speaks of between the Gentiles and Israel. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off. So there's all this damnation on the Gentile nations, and yet Paul could come through Christ to preach peace to those who were afar off, away from Israel, and to them that were nigh. And through him we, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, we see this first peace that he speaks of between Israel and the Gentiles becoming one. But he does say here, those that are near, so verse 17, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were near. He's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah. So let's go to Isaiah to see what he was quoting, to see the other peace, the fuller peace that this gospel alludes to. Isaiah chapter 57. Chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever. There is contention. There is disagreement and contention between God and his people. And God is hunting down his people and punishing them according to the covenant. But he says, I will not contend forever. Neither will I always be angry. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I angry. Israel was evil. That's why I was angry. And I struck him. I hid myself. And I was angry, and he went on perversely in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to him that is far off, and to him that is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So those northern tribes that were scattered and are far off, God says peace. This is the gospel of peace. We need to, again, understand the true doctrine. And once we understand it, behave accordingly. And then we need to have be preparing ourselves 
for the gospel of peace. So, so before we go out, we need to understand what we're going out with. What is the gospel of peace? We need to understand it and preach this. Back in chapter 52 of Isaiah, chapter 52 of Isaiah, Now therefore, verse 5, Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing, that they that rule over them make them to howl, says the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. God is the Holy One of Israel, and Israel is being taken away, subjugated, humiliated, and the, the, the name of Israel is being blasphemed every day. And God is saying, what is going on here? It, mind you, it's according to the covenant. But then he says, Therefore, my people shall know my name. How is that going to happen exactly? How will God's people come to know his name? Unless there's somebody whose feet are shod with the gospel of peace, that are ready to tell his people peace. Comfort you, my people. Tell my people that her warfare has ended. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet, those whose feet are shod with the gospel of peace, the preparation of the gospel of peace, and now we can go out. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings the gospel that publishes peace in the context it's warfare on Israel warfare on Judah and somebody says I know it looks horrible I know it looks like you're all going to be wiped out I'm here to declare peace why because God is the Holy One of Israel because God will be glorified in Israel forever and his name is the Holy One of Israel I know you hate the name Israel too bad. I'm here to declare the God of the universe is the Holy One of Israel. And I'm telling his people, you can be comfortable now. God is going to come and save you. He's going to redeem you. How beautiful upon the feet are the, on the mountains are the feet of him that brings good news, that publishes peace, that brings good news of good, that publishes salvation. In the context of war on Israel, Israel will be saved that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, your God reigns. I know he's being blasphemed. I know it appears like those that have surrounded you and have invaded you, like their God has the upper hand. And they're saying how great their God is. I'm here to tell you, your God reigns. And you will have peace. Hebrews 2. God tells us in advance that those that kill us will think they're doing God's service. This is the false narrative. This is the deception. He tells us that we'll be hated by all nations for his name's sake. So we're going to be educating Israel that God is the Holy One in Israel. And we'll be hated for this. The name of Israel will be blasphemy to the heathen. But we'll be preaching the Holy One of Israel. And will be hated by all nations for his name's sake. 
in Hebrews 2 and verse 14, in terms of our feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel. Hebrews 2 verse 14, he says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. So this, what is Satan's power? Yes, it's deception, but it's also the power of death. Human, we don't want to die. We don't want to suffer. And so the devil, through deception, rallies his troops and then threatens us with death. And this is his power. He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So as we see these sweeping changes in society, as we see political correctness start to come with muscle and financial implications and tech giants all colluding and cooperating, and we don't want to hear about Christ on pain of death, we, the scripture says, will betray one another. I don't want to die. It's easier for me to betray you than to die. Unless we are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, we know what we're going into. We understand what the gospel of peace is, how much the name of Israel is hated, and we are prepared. And now we are free from this bondage. You want to threaten to kill me? Actually, I have a different narrative playing in my head that says the power of the resurrection. That Jesus Christ, yeah, you killed him. He came as flesh and blood, and you slew him. And then three days and three nights later, he stood up and he lives and he ascended to heaven. And with that power, that's the power that's over us. And so we have a different narrative. This this death is not the end. Clarionproject.org, that's Clarion Project says, close to 100,000 Christians are being killed every year because of their faith. One Muslim falsely claims that she had a hijab taken off her. Fake news. And it's all over the world. Oh no! A a, a Muslim had a hijab taken off her head. A hundred thousand Christians are being killed every year because of their faith. Silence. In the postmodern philosophical narrative, Your life doesn't matter. Your life needs to be destroyed. The Christian ethic needs to be uprooted out of society. So Christians can never be victims. Oh, the Easter worshippers were killed. We can't say Christians and create sympathy for Christians because the Christian life doesn't matter. This is where we're headed. Close to 100,000 Christians are being killed every year because of their faith. According to statistics from a Pew Research survey, and the International Society for Human Rights, and non-religious organizations. These figures, which represent an unprecedented numbers of deaths per year, amount to 273 Christians being killed every day, 11 every hour. This is the, new, this is the postmodern world. It's anti-logos. 
Ephesians 6, the final proactive piece of our weaponry where we go on the offensive is in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. So that's, we're going to cover our mind and the narratives that are in our mind with the narrative of salvation and the sword of the spirit. It is with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that we go on the offensive. Acts 4, verse 12. He says here, verse 12, Neither, this is Peter, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They hate this. All religions are equal. Everything's the same. Christ is just one option. No. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Period. It is exclusive to Jesus Christ. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Jesus gave them a narrative that enabled them to see beyond the threats, that enabled them to see beyond the persecution, even beyond pain of death. Verse 29, when they come back to the congregation, they pray, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Look at their threatenings. And grant unto your servants a way of escape. Help us get out of here. They're not interested in escape. They have a different narrative. Grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak the sword of the Spirit, your word. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Let us not back down. This is getting ugly. This is really, it's, it's, it's accelerating and getting very ugly. And cowards are appearing everywhere. Suddenly, cowards are appearing. As, as they get stronger, as they inflict greater and greater pain, we're seeing turncoats. Never turn and run. Never turn and run. What we have, they need to hear. And we need to preach. And take the sword of the Spirit. And not back down. In Isaiah 2, we're going to go from a world We're going to go from a world that is, th deception covers this earth like waters cover the sea. All of that deception is going to be drained and replaced with the knowledge of the Lord. And we see here the new world here in Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days. This will happen, guaranteed. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house, he's going to live somewhere, shall be established in the top of the mountains. 
and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it, every nation. And many people shall go and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. God will be glorified in Israel and no one else. He will be glorified in Israel. So nations all over the world are going to say, let's go to Jerusalem. We can get educated there by the God of Jacob. Let's go to the house of Jacob, to the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. And he will have priests that will be teaching. He will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. We'll we'll give up this deception. We'll give up this vanity and this nonsense. And we're going to walk, we're going to get true doctrine and good behavior. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, which is the sword of the Spirit. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. All of this lust, bloodlust, chopping off people's heads and loving the blood that the satanic sacrifice ritual that they're participating in, it's over. We were deceived. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the deception and the narratives that were enabling war, it's over. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Chapter 30 of Isaiah. Chapter 30. So this is the vision that the whole earth is going to love God, is going to desire God's ways, is going to come to Zion to be educated. Chapter 30, verse 19. Despite what's happening now, despite what's going to happen in the near future, despite the slaughter of Jerusalem that's coming, God says through Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 19, for the people, that is the Jewish people, shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. This is the counsel of God. This is the plan of God. This is what, the, this is what Satan hates but God is going to do. The people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. So God is going to stop hiding from his people. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore. So God is going to stop hiding from his people and he's going to make visible teachers. There's going to be a mass re-education that starts with the re-education of his people. Then the Gentiles will come to Zion to be educated by the priests which we have educated. Yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore But your eyes shall see your teachers, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk you in it. 
So then the Gentiles can come to them and learn the way. But they have to learn the way. Just as right now, we have to learn the way. So Ephesians 6 is all about us learning the way so that we can teach it to Israel and Judah who will learn the way so that they can teach it to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, let, let's go to Zion so we can learn the way. This is the way. Walk you in it. When you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. So God is determined that when they try to deviate, God is determined that they have teachers so that they go the right way. Let's look at two passages as we conclude. Again, the, the armor of the Lord is, is comprehensive. I'm just looking at the three pieces that we need to think about in terms of the purpose that we are called to to re-educate the world. We need, we need our loins girt about with truth. That truth is doctrinal, it's narrative, but it, it results in behavior. We need to be with true holiness. We need to have our shoes. That is the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need to know what the gospel of peace is. What is this peace? What is the good news of the peace between Gentiles and Israel and between God and Israel? That he's using the Gentiles to punish his people. But he now says peace. I'm going to stop hiding. And when you call, I'm going to hear you. This is the good news. And then we need to go forward with the sword of the spirit which is the word of the Lord. Here in Isaiah 62 and verse 11, as our world is unraveling, and, and you just get this sense of acceleration. The world is just unraveling very fast. It's becoming a very different world very quickly. The things that people believe, the things that people fight for, the things that come out of people's mouths, like just 20 years ago, we believed the exact opposite. We fought for the exact opposite. We said the exact opposite. How has all this changed in two decades? What will the next two decades bring? So as this world unravels so fast, Isaiah 62, verse 11, the prophet writes, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed unto the end of the world, to the end of the world, say you to the daughter of Zion, the, 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 the final era of Zion, the, the, the Zion that will meet the Lord, say to her, Behold, I have good news. Armies are going to surround you. They're going to come in and they're going to be chopping off heads and raping and destroying and enslaving. But I have good news. God is the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy One of Israel. And so to the daughter of Zion, we say, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. There is a massive re-education campaign that is going to get underway when Christ returns. This, this heavy amount of lifting, this work is before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. This is the gospel of peace. The whole world will be re-educated. The deception will be lifted. The holy people will be identified. And they'll be called the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The exact opposite of what everybody was believing. That God had forsaken Jerusalem. That God, that this, these people were, were uh, nobody wanted them. And now they're going to be the jewel of the earth. Let's conclude in Second Corinthians chapter 10. 
this world is going to go from a world that's covered in deception to a world that is full of the knowledge of the Lord. And God is gathering his, his team to be part of this massive re-education process. Here in 2 Corinthians 10, but Ephesians is showing us, it starts with us. We're, we're not going to be teaching, how shall I say this, uh, conceptually. You know, people are not going to, Israel's not going to gather, and then we teach them conceptually. Uh, you know, I've been reading this textbook, and it seems to say that you should be doing, you should live like this. We're going to be teaching them experientially, from firsthand experience. Listen, I was in that situation. I, I confronted that temptation. I had that horrible habit. And this is how I overcame. This is the strength. You would, this was me before. This is me after. You would not believe the transformative power of the Spirit of God. We're going to be teaching firsthand. Here, and so that's what Ephesians 6 is showing us. Get it right. Have your loins girt about with truth. Get the doctrine right, then get your behavior right. And he lists uh, chapter 4, chapter 5, first part of chapter 6, very practical ways that we can live truthfully, having learned the truth. Here in 2 Corinthians 10, we conclude. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We start with ourselves, and then we engage these weapons of mass instruction to educate all Israel and all the entire world. But we can't do that unless we start with ourselves. God is not going to have hypocrites teaching his people. You should be holy. I'm a complete hypocrite, but you should be holy. No, we've got to pull down these strongholds in ourselves first and then pull down the strongholds in the world. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We've read Isaiah. We understand the plan of God. And anything that casts itself against that, we're going to pull down with the sword of the Spirit. Come with your rhetoric. We've got the scriptures. We know the scriptures. And we can slay any false argument with the scriptures. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And this is the message of the apostle in Ephesians. Get yourself together first. Get myself together first. And then we can join Christ in avenging all disobedience. But if we have disobedience, if we are not truthful, how can he include us? in this massive re-education process. So brethren, let's embrace our calling. Let's embrace our purpose. Let's embrace our weapons of mass instruction. With that, brethren, I'll ask you to stand. We'll say goodbye to our online audience as we close in prayer, and then I'll give the service back over.
to Brother Landon. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, overwhelmed with the richness of your loving kindness toward us. We thank you so much, Father, for this plan that you put in place from the foundation of the world. And you, from the beginning, you declared what will happen in the end. And we know that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. And everything that you declared anciently will stand. That you declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times that which is not yet done, saying, my plans, my counsel shall stand. And so, Father, we find ourselves in a world filled with deception, filled with violence, hatred, and debauchery, and arguing that the evil is good and the good is evil. We pray, Father, that you will help us. We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So help us, Father, to stand in the power of Christ and to overcome all of this wickedness. And, Father, help us to overcome the wickedness in ourselves, that once our obedience is accomplished, we can join Christ in avenging all disobedience and in re-educating this world. What a glory. What a glory we have in this calling. Help us, Father, to, to see it, to understand it. Lift the scales from our eyes, Father. Give us the right understanding so that we can see clearly. And help us, Father, to love you, to love Christ, to love one another, to love Israel, and to love all of mankind as we seek to be a part in this, this massive, incredible plan for this season of, of your overall plan for mankind. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So with that, brethren, I'll ask Brother Landon stay standing. <laughs>